I'd like to speak this evening to offer some reflections on seeing the way things are. This is an area of really central interest in Dharma practice to see what's actually happening, what's going on clearly, directly for ourselves. We can, if we look at uh, our lives and our experience, we can see that if we don't really see or understand clearly what's happening, if we don't see the way things are, it's really hard to live skillfully. It's really difficult to align our actions, our choices, our responses with with what's actually needed. And in some ways we could see or say that suffering arises essentially from ways of behavior that are not informed by that seeing, by that understanding of how things are, that are born out of misunderstanding, misperception. The Buddha spoke about avidya, which is sometimes translated as ignorance, and that's a I don't know in American um, English usage, but certainly in other places, it's, it's not a very polite word if you describe someone as ignorant. It's kind of pejorative. Is it, have that feeling here? <laughs> yeah, okay. So I thought so. Um, so that translation I don't think is particularly helpful. And I find it more useful to think in terms of blindness, that there's a, a way in which we simply don't see how things are. It's not because we're stupid. It's because we haven't necessarily been taught, shown, or supported in the ways that will enable that true and clear seeing to arise. And the practice of the Dharma, the practice of meditation as we're engaged with it here on this retreat and in our lives is very much concerned with this seeing, with this recognizing what's going on. And so we can often find ourselves being quite hard or harsh towards ourselves because of the struggles we get into, the confusion we get entangled with, the mistakes that we make. And if we think it's because we're foolish or stupid or, you know, somehow a failure at life, then that's a really unfortunate, unhelpful and profoundly untrue way of understanding what it is that gives rise to the struggles and the, we could call, say, mistakes that we make. There's really no other way to learn apart from making mistakes. And so, part of what we are asked to do is to, in a way, become conscious of how we're looking at, how we're perceiving, how we're understanding what's going on, and checking out what happens when I act on this way of looking at things. What happens when I, in line with my perception, act accordingly? Because essentially, wisdom, the wisdom that's transformative is that way of seeing and understanding life which when we act according to it leads to a a reduction 
a healing, a resolution, and a coming ultimately to an end of suffering. This is what the wisdom of the Dharma teachings is pointing us to, an ability to see things as they are in order to then be able to live in harmony with them rather than find ourselves in conflict or in, in struggle with life. So, one of the fundamental causes of not seeing clearly, of the, the experience that we could describe as blindness, is that we tend to really not allow ourselves to rest our attention on our experience very fully. We tend to form conclusions based on surface appearance, born on or based on very often fleeting experiences. If we notice and you may have noticed already, in fact, I really hope you've noticed already, how quickly the mind moves from one thing to another, to another. Touches this, touches that, moves to something else. Maybe we're in contact with the breath or body, and in a micro flash of a second, we can be somewhere far distant in time and space. And that speed of movement shows or points out the way that unless we train and work with the mind and develop its capacity to land and connect, it doesn't necessarily make full or deep contact with experience. And, and therefore, it's not able to see fully what's really happening. And I had an experience quite some years ago now that, that spoke to me about this process very poignantly. And um, it's a story I... I like to share with regard to this possibility of seeing and equally the potential for, for not. And so this was an uh, experience that happened when uh, one morning after my meditation on a cold winter's morning in, I think, February in England it was, and I just opened my eyes to look out the window in front of me, about, um, I guess, three or four yards ahead of me, the other end of the room, and I saw on the windowsill, as I looked in that sort of fresh, bright way that sometimes one has after a period of meditation, not always, but on this occasion, a sort of bright, open-eyed sort of look, and I saw on the windowsill a little snail. And it was, at first, just I was kind of quite delighted to see it there. It was just this little creature. Um, and then my mind very quickly kicked in with, what's it doing there? What's it, why is it here? And I thought, oh, okay, yeah. It's probably here because it's cold out there. I don't normally remember seeing snails in the winter. So, you know, <laughs> it's probably come in because it's cold. And I was thinking, but how to get it, how, how to turn up here? And I realized, of course, I left the window open, though, although it was very cold. It had, the paint had been peeling. And so I'd had to, it had got waterlogged and swollen up. So I'd had to take a plane and trim it to size and repaint it. And then I couldn't close it because the paint would have stuck. So I had to leave it open. It, was a, you know, it took about half a second for all that to go through my mind. Hmm? And so, oh, okay. And then I thought, so the snail came in. It's come in because it's cold out there. And then I thought, but there's nothing for it to eat in here. It's going to die anyway. And I, I felt this real 
sense of concern and distress on behalf of this little creature. And I was watching and just still delighting in that the beautiful brown spiral markings of its shell and those two little beady eyes on stalks just waving around as they were. And I was just thinking, what can I do? If I, if, if I keep it here, it's going to starve. If I put it back out, it's going to freeze. And I was momentarily in something of a dilemma. And then I had this idea. I thought, I know. I can put it in my neighbor's greenhouse. You, know, you call it greenhouse or glass house, you know? Yeah. I thought, great. It'll be not so cold, plenty to eat. Didn't think about my neighbor, but <laughs> I was just concerned about the snail. And there was just the sense of relief. It's like, oh, oh. So I got up and reached out to pick up the snail, which turned out to be a wood shaving. curled up little spiral piece of very finely shaved wood from when I'd planed the window. And in the moment where the perception of the snail, this creature who I'd worried about, you know, being willing to solve its problems at risk of my sort of neighbourhood uh, sort of well-being, it would seem, or, you know, the harmony of the neighbourhood was at risk for this little creature. And suddenly it was just, boof, it wasn't there. It never existed in the way that I imagined it to have existed. Hmm? And yet I've been caught up with its, the, the struggles of its life and the solutions to its problems. And it was just that. Construction in the mind. And sometimes we just see that the initial perception that's been created or generated in the mind hasn't actually really seen clearly what's going on. And so much has followed from that. So much has followed from that. That was generated from blindness, from not seeing, from ignorance, we could say. Avidya, not seeing. Not seeing clearly. And so in this meditation practice, one of the the fundamental elements of what we're engaged in as we, as we settle, as we land, as we gather a, a kindly and caring sense of engagement with our experience, allowing ourselves to meet it more fully, more deeply, the capacity, the natural capacity of this, this that we call attention, that we call awareness, that we call presence, to, to really touch and sink more deeply into the experience is supported, is developed, is enhanced, we could say. And so when we, when we start to settle and see more clearly and deeply what's going on, it's possible to start to penetrate in our direct perception and understanding, to penetrate the veils that obscure our ability to see clearly and to act in harmony with the way things are. So far as we are in this condition of not seeing, of misunderstanding or misperceiving, we suffer. And so far as we're able to transform that into an accurate perception and to live in accordance with that true seeing, Suffering drops away. And so the Buddha spoke of the major misperceptions and three major misperceptions that we 
become entangled with. That through not seeing clearly in relationship to, we grasp hold of experience, we respond to experience unskillfully, unhelpfully, and that we become entangled by it and with it, and thereby experience the suffering that we can free ourselves from. So the first perception that the the Buddha spoke of, or that I'm going to speak of, I don't know that he necessarily spoke of this one first, um, probably not, but the, the first perhaps perception we need to give attention to is the way in which we tend to see experiences and phenomena which are in a process and of the nature to change, that are changing, we perceive them as somehow unchanging. We relate to them as if they are permanent, continuous, ongoing, unwavering, and not changeable. And we do this again and again. There's so many ways that we can see this play out. Some of the things that happen in meditation, sometimes the real strength of our responses to experience If we examine them, we see when something difficult arises, maybe discomfort or pain in the body, or maybe something that's tender and sore in the heart. Or maybe just the, the busyness of the mind that we at times encounter. Often when we struggle with it, there's an underlying, unquestioned perception that this is ongoing and permanent, that it's always going to be like this. Unless I do something to fix it or get rid of it, it will continue in this way. And we have the sense of projecting the experience into the future and imagining the experience as having an ongoing history into the past that's unbroken, that's solid, that's fixed and continuous. And the effect of this is to make that difficult experience feel overwhelming or unbearable. And yet, if we look really carefully at any experience, we'll see that it has and is of the nature to change, to increase in intensity and decrease in intensity, to move subtly in shape or form. And when we experience pain in our body, if we really pay attention to it, if we don't just call it pain and kind of, kind of place a sort of blunt sort of conceptual label over it, but we really feel into it, we see, oh, it's here and it's here, and it's moving, and although we might say it's the same pain, it's not. It's this one, and then this one, and then this one. In fact, the, you know, the, uh, the, the way the biology works, they have to fire one at a time. Well, not one at a time, but they, it can't continuously fire the same nerve. It needs to recharge, and then while it's recharging, something else fires. And then this one goes, and we think it's permanent, but it's not. It's just bing, 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 but it's happening quite quickly. So without some really refined attention, we can't directly perceive that that's what's going on, although science has clearly um, measured and confirmed that reality in terms of our sensory experience. And likewise, if we, if we feel something in terms of the emotional life, and we sometimes feel like it's ongoing, maybe there's a sense of, of sadness or, 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 or struggle or, or, or sort of 
feeling kind of not really that great about ourselves. And sometimes the feeling when it arises, it comes with a sense, oh, it's always felt this way. I've always felt kind of sad and sort of depressed or never felt that great about myself. And, you know, actually I seem to remember it was always like that through my life. My parents didn't feel that great about themselves, to be honest. They were pretty sad. And, um, you know, probably it's going to be like that for my kids. You know, it's sort of like not only do we project it in our own life, but we have the sense of extension through... In fact, uh, you know, the whole of history, it seems, sometimes. And we don't quite see that what's happening in this moment is, right now, this is an experience. It might be, we call physical pain. It might be something painful, like sadness, or not feeling great about myself in this moment. Or it might be just the, the franticness of the mind at times, or the heaviness and dullness we might encounter. And just think, oh, it's like this now. And to notice what happens if we just say, it's like this For now, suddenly it's workable. The reality is we can handle it because it's now. Because we're actually already handling it. We might not be liking it, but we're already handling it. Now, here, it's the projection to the future that makes it unhandleable. And we do it so quickly and unconsciously. But we need to see that we're doing that. And we likewise, when we see something arising that's pleasurable, that we tend to grasp at, that we tend to think, I want this. There's this underlying belief that drives that movement to take hold of something that suggests that it could last, that it could be of the nature to be permanent, that we could always have this. And we've, you know, we've talked about arriving at that place in meditation where suddenly it feels great. We think, I'm here, and now I'm going to stay here. When did that happen for anybody? Can anyone report that today they got to somewhere, good, bad, or indifferent, and stayed there? Can anyone report that? I mean, I'm glad you didn't put your hand up, actually, because um, apart from it would have been a little bit embarrassing for me. You know, someone say, yeah, it was, that's it. But, um, or something like that. But it also might have suggested that, gosh, I wouldn't have wanted to say this, but I'm not sure that person really paid much attention today. So I'm glad. It probably means you've been paying attention, which is what we're here to do. And yet we have this incredibly strong kind of way in which we place onto experience an assumption, a projection, and a misconception of continuity that we need to notice. And it's really helpful to identify, to distinguish it, to discern it in our in our perception, when we're engaging with experience. Particularly if we notice we're trying to push something away, it's like, do we imagine that unless we push it away, it's going to be here forever? Or if we're trying to hold on to it, do we believe that by grabbing hold of it, we can get to keep this thing? I mean, there wouldn't be much point pushing away or grabbing hold of unless we had, to some extent, that belief going on. And so, if we see that, then there's a there's a kind of a letting go that can begin to happen around phenomena. We see, oh, oh, they come, they go. It's one of the things we see here again and again and again. It's one of the primary contemplative themes of Dharma practice is to see things come and that things go. That we don't have control over these experiences because they're coming and going. They arise out of conditions. And this really leads us to the second fundamental and primary area of misconception, misperception, that we need to become aware of. 
And this is the way in which we can relate to or perceive experience or conditions or circumstances in such a way as we imagine them as having the capacity to give us, to provide us, to offer us lasting satisfaction, to give us fulfillment, or to actually be some kind of absolute or complete bar to that capacity or that possibility of finding lasting satisfaction. We give things this kind of authority that this could fulfill me, but that if this is so, I could not be fulfilled, I could not be happy. And we take those positions again very quickly and without necessarily examining the truth of that. The reality of change points out or reveals to us how this could not be so. How could anything which is changing give us a lasting effect, whether it be satisfaction or dissatisfaction? How could it make that permanent for us if it in itself is not? Hmm? Do you follow how that's quite compelling as an understanding? And this is the reflection that the Buddha asked us and asked his followers in his day and that we're asked to kind of contemplate, to reflect on a little. It's like it's so... It's such a strong sense we have. There's a, a lovely... And uh, I find quite poignant story of uh, Mullah Nasruddin. It's, it's quite a well-known and commonly told one, but I, uh, I won't let that hold me back from telling it one more time. Um, Mullah Nasruddin is a Sufi teaching figure who seems to be both a wise man and a fool, although one might perhaps suspect that his foolishness is a simply a way of waking us up to our own. And one day Nasruddin was sitting in the village square on market day with a large pile of red hot chilies in front of him and his friends coming along found him sitting there with his he was eating the chilies and his eyes were running his face was red he looked like he was in some distress and they said mullah mullah what are you doing nazarin looked at them picked up a chili chewed on it swallowed it his whole body shuddered with distress and pain and his eyes were streaming he said I'm eating these chilies. <laughs> and they said, Mullah, Mullah, we can see you're eating these chilies. Why are you eating these chilies? He smiled. He said, I keep hoping to find a sweet one. <laughs> if there was some experience, condition, or situation, which could give us lasting satisfaction. We would have found it by now. Most of us have been looking and trying all kinds of things for a long, long time. Really, haven't we? And perhaps one of the reasons we're here is we've realized that none of those things have done it for us. And maybe we're hoping that actually sitting here watching our breath is going to do it for us. Now, I don't want to in any way disappoint you here or disillusion you with this practice, but... That's not really how it works. Although there's some really useful and beneficial things that come through doing this that we're doing. But in a certain way, we have to just examine this. It's kind of, it's kind, it's kind of a, a childlike innocence that's in a way endearing. 
in the, in the story of Nazareth, in the sense of the, the hope, that despite the fact that how many of these things one has eaten, one realizes actually they burn. But actually I'll just try one more in case this one's different. And that, have you noticed that sense of, oh, maybe this time. And then we, either we can't get it and we think, oh, that didn't work, but then we get it, we finally get to that place, and for a moment there's a sense of, ah, oh, relief. And then that urge to find something comes again. And the thought is as if we'd completely forgotten all the things we tried before. This one has that opportunity. This one could do it for me. This one could give it to me. This one, you know, this, I don't know, here we're talking about, you know, meditative experience. If I can just get to that place where the breath becomes so calm and so fine, so sweet. I'm sure that's the place that they've been talking about, you know. And then it's all going to happen for me. You know, that sense of, and then. But, and then, just something else happens. How well and fully do we get this? I mean, what, what would it be for us? How would we relate to things? If we didn't give them that authority, that capacity, that power. And I think it's worth pointing out, because this, this teaching is often reflected on in terms of things can't give us satisfaction. That we can't get lasting satisfaction with it from, you know, relationships, from jobs, from possessions, from um, situations. All these things can be supportive. They can serve us. They can contribute to well-being. All those things are useful, but they can't in themselves give us lasting satisfaction. And perhaps we've seen that, we've reflected on that, but to equally understand that conditions that are unsupportive or difficult for us in themselves equally don't have the capacity to somehow be an absolute bar. And if we notice ourselves thinking in the equally, in a way, blinded way, of thinking, because this condition is so, therefore I cannot be happy? Because this thing is going on, whether it be the fact that, um, you know, there's that wind that blows through that window and those little um, things go, have you heard that? (laughs) Have you had the thought that that's really annoying? And that this meditation experience would be a lot better if it didn't happen, that noise? Has anyone had that thought? I mean, I don't know if someone's actually gone and pulled them up now so that they won't do that. It would be kind of a shame if that was the case, but <laughs> even though I thought of doing it myself. Because at some level we participate in this thing, if I can just adjust the conditions, then it's going to work for me. But I adjust this and I'm dead sure I'll figure something else out that turns out to be the problem. Because, you know, I've been practicing it for decades. It's not about the thing. And so again, we're invited, we're asked to look and see where are we operating from that point of view? When are we relating to the experience as if this that I've either got or I'm trying to get will give me everything I'm looking for? Or this which I'm encountering or trying to avoid is somehow that which stands in the way of it. if we can just introduce a sense of just questioning there. It's not like we have to somehow take a view that says, oh, you know, it's the opposite. But just start to wonder, is it really so? 
is this really true? Is it really like this? It's nice that something's funny. <laughs> I'm curious to know what it is. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, great. I hadn't heard it yet. I was busy thinking, hmm, can I actually read these words anymore or do I need the glasses? Am I, am I kidding myself that I'm reading this? Or looking, I will actually see what's written down there. Hmm. So the third area of misperception that the Buddha asked us to contemplate and to really examine very carefully was the way in which we can perceive of and believe in things, beings, ourself, and events as having independent self-existence, as existing apart from untouched by and not necessarily dependent upon the conditions around them. The idea that there may be something that is other than separate from, independent from everything else around it, whether it be what we call ourself and another, or whether a simple object or the totality of our experience. In any way we look at it or think about it, in which we imagine it somehow to have a discrete existence, a separate existence, a way in which it is apart from everything else. So far as we see things, others or ourselves in this way, we find ourselves profoundly out of step with the truth of life. It's so counterintuitive in one way, isn't it? You know, here's someone, me, sitting here saying that actually, in some way or sense, whatever is here cannot be ultimately separated from everything else. And yet, rather than trying to kind of figure that out or kind of take that as a position, What's useful to see is what happens when we relate to things as if they are somehow separate from ourself or another. What, what starts to happen is we need to somehow define by identifying with particular events, characteristics or phenomena a sense of location of definition, of particularity. And there's a, there's a value and a place in being able to do that for a certain, to a certain degree. But so far as we have this idea and conception that we 
are the owner of this experience or this life in some way that that sense of we, me or you or anyone else is somehow separate from it as the owner of it as opposed to simply an expression of and part of how it expresses itself, how it manifests. So far as we see in this way, it's really hard to find a sense of deep and enduring peace in life. What is here? What is happening? If we examine it carefully, if we look deeply into experience, what we see is that however what we call me or this arises, and this is the place we can examine the most closely. It's equally true of anything else. But this, because this is what it seems we're most able to be in contact with directly, if we really look and see what's going on here, What's happening? What's this that we call body and mind that we say is me or mine? And we can see that actually in terms of the experience there's this process, this flow, this, we could say, movement or we sometimes use the language of river of experience being known. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts, feelings being known, being revealed, it would seem. And each and every one of those experiences is clearly changing, moving, fluid, flowing from one thing to another. And seeing that they're changing, we can perhaps see that there's nothing in those changing experiences we can really say defines as the kernel or essential core of what we are a sense of me. It's like there's these processes that are fluid, that are going on. They're not in our control. One of the things that's the, one of the hardest things about this practice is the fact that it brings us into a direct confrontation with our belief that we are the owner of this inner experience and that as a result of the being the owner of it, we should be able to get it to do what we think or want it to do, what we think it should do. Hmm? Anyone tried that? <laughs> Again, did it work? You know, you could make a lot of money writing a book if it did. But actually, it's inevitable that we discover to our, it seems, initial disappointment that we're not able to control the aspects of what's going on that seem most closely who we imagine ourselves to be or most definitive of the sense of self that we take ourselves to be. And the Buddha invited us to contemplate, to ask ourselves, if this experience is changing, it's not in our control. Does it make sense to say that this is who we are? Doesn't it make sense to say this is me? Because that would be a me that can't really be grasped or defined. Because all the ways I would tend to define it are based on things that are changing. And that when we look at 
our sense of who or what we imagine ourselves to be, all the bases for that, only appear fixed, solid and enduring because we don't look carefully at the fact that they are changing and contingent, that they arise in some circumstances and then fall away in others. And there isn't anything that's ongoing here. We tend to think of ourselves as having this kind of history and future and that somehow creates this sense of me moving in time from past to future, you know? And that we, we, we tell stories to ourselves and each other about it. And we, there's all sorts of ways in which we create and reinforce that impression. But if we stop and just reflect on it, it's like, where is the body that we had 10 years ago? You know, does it, is it somewhere? You know, could we go back and check it out? It's, it's just, or 20 years or 30 or however many. It's just so gone, isn't it? Just so gone. None of the, apart from hopefully a few brain cells, almost all of the cells have died and been replaced. And even the few that might still be sort of functioning. I'm not actually quite sure of my biology here. I better probably shut up in a moment. But um, <laughs> uh, the very in construction of the cells that do sustain through a, a longer period of time, that actually has to be reconstructed ongoingly as part of the maintenance of the cell itself, just as the cells have to be reconstructed to maintain the body itself. So there's really very little here that was here 10 years ago. Very little at all. And where is the mind that you had 10, 20, 30 years ago? Where is that gone? I mean, that just goes so quickly. The mind that we had 10 minutes ago can just disappear. And a moment of elation, delight, and joy can just dissolve into a moment of blindness, blankness, confusion, distress. And equally, the distress can just dissolve into a moment of peace, of clarity, of openness. And you know, where is the mind and the body that you're going to have tomorrow? Or in 10 years' time. Do you think it exists in some way? Because it doesn't. It's just, there's just this here. And if we think it exists tomorrow, or will exist, well, that's only if the conditions are fortunate enough to support it. And every day, minds and bodies like this, that thought they were going to be here tomorrow, aren't. So how do we relate to this then? If it's that transient. It doesn't mean that of course we don't care for it. And that of course we don't care for those that aren't here tomorrow. Or that aren't here that were. But that we can maybe look at it and start to see that the stories we tell ourselves about who we believe ourselves to be are just that. Stories. That we talk about our, our history of what happened to me, about how it was for me. And yet, that's really just a construction of images that we carry with us. And who I will be, or who I might be, or how it will be in the future. It's a projection of ideas based on those past fragments of memory. 
And what's actually here right now is something very different than that. It's something alive, something dynamic, and which you can't point to anything within it that will always be so. And say, yep, that's me. And yet, that doesn't quite make sense, does it? Because it feels like it's me. There's the sense of it feels like there is something fixed in here that's in charge of this thing, that's running this thing. And yet, we have to look at the truth of our experience. There's an image I find quite useful that uh, one of my teachers once uh, offered. He, uh, he said it was like going on an ocean journey, this life. And you're out there in the boat and you've got the sails and there's the wind and the, the waves and the currents and all of that. And, you know, you're steering this way and you're steering that way. And after a while you start to think, well, I'm not quite sure this boat's going the way I planned. You know, and you've been doing this and doing that. And so you go down and examine the, the machinery below decks and you realize that the steering wheel that you've been busy using all the time was never connected to the rudder. <laughs> and it's like, oh, oh, just a moment. That makes sense of what's been going on. Yeah. Or maybe it wasn't that I was really bad at steering. It was that something else was actually in charge of how this, how this boat moves through the water. And yet the sense of me arises, the sense of self arises and says, yeah, that's me doing this or not doing that, being confused, hopefully getting liberated. There's a certain validity to that perception. But there's also a way in which we easily become fooled by it into believing that that me is somehow separate from everything that's happening inside of or to and around what we call me. And so we aren't suggested or invited here to somehow take a different view, to replace the perception we had with a different one that says, well, okay, so first of all, I thought there was a self, or I had a self, or selves could happen. As using self as the shorthand for that idea of separate, discrete, independent entities and things. Maybe that's, you know, I'll trust the Buddha on this one. So now the thought is, you know, and the idea arises, okay, so now I don't have a self. Okay? And in a way, that's not any more helpful as a position because the sense of I don't have a self equally creates a sense of something which is now without a self that's separate from all these things. The teaching is not trying to suggest to us a metaphysical position. It's pointing to a way of looking at experience to see the underlying conditionality, the underlying fluidity, and what happens for us if we live from that perspective. What happens in this life if we don't live according to the idea that not just I am separate, but that in fact anything could be ultimately separate from anything else?
when we experience challenging or difficult conditions, it's really interesting to notice the difference in how we experience between I have pain or I am experiencing fear or grief. And the pain or the fear or the grief may be very real experiences that need to be honored and really held skillfully, attended to with kindness. And at the same time to see how might it be different if we were just to see, oh, this is pain. Or this is fear. Or this is sadness. And this is what it's like. And noticing how when we add the sense of me as the owner of it, or the person who is subject to it, there's a whole other level of suffering that arises. Because inevitably then comes the sense of, but I don't want to be subject to this. As if this was being done to me. As if the thing being done to me was somehow separate from that to whom, or that which was experiencing it. And it's not. And in that separation, there's a gap, there's a disconnect that is actually the deeper suffering that happens. The way in which we disconnect, that we believe, that we perceive, that we conceive, and that we act on the basis that we are apart from. This is the basis of the deepest suffering that we encounter in life. And the healing of that misperception is the transformation, is the basis and foundation of the deeper transformation of suffering in life and in the world, in our life and in the life of others. So, although the sense of that ownership of that self, of that meanness arises, what can be useful is just to turn our attention to it, to see, oh, okay, here's the sense of self, of me, of separateness, or of you, of other. You know, it has a certain functionality. It's really helpful to know that actually the responsibility over here is to take care of this one in certain things, like at dinner time. If I if, I, if I'm to lose the ability to discern who would be most useful to put the food in my bowl into the mouth of, it would get really complicated. Now, it could still work, but it would probably get quite complicated. Hmm? And so there's, there's, there's a certain sort of ways in which we have sp- spheres or circles of response, primary responsibility for that which is perhaps most immediate. And yet at some level... <coughs> To see that if we were only concerned about getting food for this and not concerned about the impact of getting that food for this on everything else around us, that the world and our life would actually be in a really difficult way. So there's, there's something there to be understood about this, to be examined, to be reflected upon. And what's most useful, I find, again, is not trying to somehow take on a new view or position, but just to become aware of when the view that we have is operating. And just to bring in the question, what would it be if I looked at this differently? What if I were to perhaps just 
just take the sense of body, of thoughts, of feelings, emotion that we call sometimes mind and heart, the sense of experience moving and flowing as it does. Apparently it seems from past through present and to future. And just examine it to see what's actually going on here. What if we don't take this to be something other than just what is revealed moment by moment? If we don't try and step out of it or step back from it. And it's interesting in meditation because although it sometimes might seem that we're trying to get some distance from the experience, to not be entangled with it, we're not actually trying to step out of it. We're trying to see it and yet at the same time be really intimate with it, be really close to it, to allow ourselves to really be touched by what is here. Because there is a way we can know directly. We can see directly, not with the eyes, which we can understand directly, but not with the mind of the ordinary thinking, conceiving, labeling, discerning, separating. Not with that mind. And yet we can see, we can know. In a way in which suddenly the way things are makes sense. Suddenly the way things are falls into alignment with what is perceived and recognized. So, it's sometimes an uncomfortable place to invite ourselves to rest in or explore, to just relinquish the sense that we know who or what it is that we call me. To not define what this is on the basis of the stories, the history, the experiences, the qualities, the, all the different things that we might use to do that. But just instead to leave the space open, to be curious, to have a sense of, hmm, I wonder what might be going on here. That sense of openness, of introducing an element of not knowingness, of uncertainty into the field of experience, into the field of perception, really naturally conduces to and invites us to look more deeply, to rest in a more steady way with what is happening. And let it speak to us. Let it resonate in us and through us. Because the resonance of life that we we are organs that can recognize that resonance is something that we only allow us or we're only able to really know fully in that intimate and yet open contact, presence, awareness with experience, where we relinquish the assumptions, the ideas that we have about who or what this is that's 
sitting here that's going on. So it's not about building up or somehow getting rid of ego. Although it's certainly about understanding it. What that is that goes on that we call or conceive of as self. But to see that what it is does not define us. That what it takes hold of is ultimately ungraspable, is fluid, is moving. And that in letting go of the need to fix and to hold on to a position, to try and create a stable locus on anything, on any idea, to let go of that and yet not let go, not lose contact with this remarkable capacity that simply receives, perceives, knows, experiences, resonates with, is touched by, aware of, and present with. To rest in this, to see that this is something actually unbounded that we can come to know and discover for ourselves. That is not separate from any of that which is encountered moment by moment, changing, flowing, unfolding as it is. Not separate from, nor yet the same as. This is something we can know for ourselves. And in that knowing, we can equally know the the dissolution of suffering just as clearly and fully as in that moment I described when we see that what we had thought to be a snail was not what we had imagined. That something was going on, yes. But what it was was slightly different than we had believed. And if this tends to generate a lot of thinking, and sometimes it can, my invitation for you is to really not try and figure it out. Don't try and answer the questions, but let yourself feel the uncertainties. Let yourself be touched by the uncertainties that those questions might seek otherwise to answer. And see what you might discover right here. Moment by moment, day by day. What we're interested in is never far away. So let's just sit quietly together for a few moments.
So what we're most deeply interested in here is not limited or defined by the content of our experience, inner or outer. And we're asked to let go of it all, while at the same time staying intimate with each moment. And what we let go into is a vastness that is ungraspable and unbounded. So may we all in our practice see deeply beyond the surface appearance of things and come to understand the way things are, to know the truth that is unbounded in this very life for our own well-being and liberation, for the welfare and the liberation of all beings. So please, continue with your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.